You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am really excited to have uh, an author who needs no introduction to anyone who has been reading for the last uh, four or five decades. Uh, Dean Kuntz uh, has a brand new book. It's called Devoted with a brand new... Um, a new publishing uh, deal with Amazon that uh, is has a lot of people talking uh, right now. Uh, welcome to the show, Dean. Well, thanks for having me there. I'm, I'm excited to have you. Um, Dean, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Well, it goes back to when I was about eight years old uh, is the earliest I remember this. And I started when I was, and you have to understand, there were no books in our house. Uh, books were considered a waste of time. And uh, however, I started uh, writing little stories on tablet paper and illustrating them and drawing a cover and stapling the edges. And I put electrician's tape over the staples so nobody hurt their fingers. And I peddled them to relatives for a nickel. Uh, and I don't know, for the longest time, I couldn't understand why did that, why did I become obsessed with telling stories and uh, and actually producing booklets when I was that young? And many, many years later, I think well into my 30s, maybe my 40s, because I'm slow on some things, it suddenly dawned on me that when I was about uh, four years old, my mother was in hospital and in rehab for about six months uh, dealing with spinal surgery. And my father was a violent alcoholic, and so I couldn't be left with him. And I was left with a friend of hers whose house was just as orderly as ours was uh, dysfunctional. And every night she put me to bed with a story and a cherry ice cream soda. And she would read the story while I had the soda. And one day I suddenly realized from a very young age, I started to associate storytelling with peace, calm, quiet, and a, and a real home life. And I bet that's where it came from. So I was very young. The first thing I ever Read, I think it was called the Magic Puppy. Uh, so there was a little forecasting in that as well. <laughs> of all of the stories that I've heard uh, of people's first memories, and uh, you know, over uh, eight hundred and fifty that that we've recorded so far, um, by far, um, those stories include um, an encouraging parent or an encouraging. Uh, someone of influence that encourages uh, the child to read and then uh, kind of by osmosis, I think, you know, storytelling uh, is, is birthed out of that. Uh, rarely do I hear of a negative uh, connotation of, of a parent who, who um, discourages or even forbids, uh, you know, reading books and buying books and, and things like that. Do you, do you feel like that, that, that first negative experience has, 
uh, almost challenged you and and emboldened you uh, to pursue storytelling and and uh, your love of 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 books and and story to this point. Well, I I think that woman, uh, her name was Louise, my mother's friend, uh, got me on the track at a very young age. Uh, And then by the time I was eight and making little booklets, I was also going to the library uh, in our little town and uh, and reading. And I think what it was was the encouragement or at least the example that that woman set during those six months. And then the fact that I really needed to escape that house. And until I was old enough that I was given a bicycle by an uncle of mine, there was no way to escape it except into books. And I remember by the time I was 11 or 12, I'd read everything in the children's section and the young adult section at the library. And in those days, the librarian wouldn't allow you into the adult section until you were 18. (laughs) And uh, you might accidentally pick up Peyton Place and have your whole life ruined. Who knows? But when I got to be 11 or 12, and I literally read everything in that uh, library that uh, was right for my age, uh, the librarian said, you know, you so you've read so much, and I think you're more mature than your years, which was not true. Um, but <laughs> she was deluded into thinking it was, and she said she would let me into the adult section as long as she approved of the books I wanted to take out. So by the time I was eleven or twelve, I was reading things like Dracula and taking out uh, uh, some things like uh, oh, Marjorie Morningstar, all variety of things. So from an early age, I was reading uh, different things, and uh, and that had a big influence on me. So the librarian who allowed that, uh, I give her a lot of credit. Right. The um, Your writing over the years has, uh, uh, has included some of the most popular uh, suspense books, uh, things that, that border on, on horror or maybe even cross the line um, at points. Um, and things that kind of get into our head and uh, make us think about the world around us. Um, do you remember what the first story like that, uh, the first uh, thing that made your pulse pound and made you want to, you know, uh, f- burn through the pages to find out what's going on? Do you remember what what uh, book that was that just lit your imagination on fire? Well, there's a lot of them over the years. The first one's hard to recollect. Uh, the, the first thing that, first thing I ever read that had, I was very young, probably I was eight, nine around there, was The Wind in the Willows that I just was fascinated with. The first kind of book I can remember that really uh, I, I had to turn those pages was between the ages of 14 and probably 20, I read all, I went from reading all kinds of stuff to reading science fiction almost exclusively. And I can remember picking up Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. And uh, I happened to be, I had a job. I worked, I was by that time I was 15, 16, I w- was working in different jobs uh, and uh, in a grocery store. And then I got a summer job at a, at a park, a state park, and I, one of my shifts was the midnight to 8 a.m. shift in the campground, which is 
there's nobody awake or doing anything at eight to twelve and uh, uh, or twelve to eight in the morning in a campground. So most of the job was being paid to sit there and read, and that was that Heinlein novel. And I, I, the first eight-hour shift went by so fast, and I'll never forget that I then read everything I could get by that author. Some were wonderful, and some weren't, but. Robert Heinlein was such a gateway drug for so many people. Um, I, <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember uh, um, uh, Have Space Suit Will Travel um, just completely blew my mind. And I was probably in the fifth grade when I r- read that, and I, I was uh, uh, I was hooked from then. Yeah, it's, uh, he did it to me. And then a little bit later, uh, uh, just right after I graduated from college, I picked up a John D. McDonald novel, and I ended up reading 34 novels in 30 days. Uh, uh, he so captivated me, and that was a profound influence. That was the writer who showed me, really, that character could be as interesting as plot. And McDonald had this habit of, in some books, especially his standalones, he would... Uh, not his Travis McGee, he would stop the story to give you the background on the character. It was very unconventional. And the first time he did it, I went, hey, I want to know more what's happening here. And we're into page two about this character's history. And then this would go on for like four or five pages. And when he went back to the story, I wanted to say, hey, wait a minute. I want to know more of this character's background. That was revelatory to me that you could make the background so interesting and the character so alive that it was equivalent to the plot. And I eventually came to feel the character is what really drives almost every story that you love. Well, and and to the point that um, you know, some people have described it as you know, character is plot. Um, when when you start thinking about um, a new character, it well, first off, is that what comes to you first um, when you start thinking about a new story? Is it a character? Um, is it uh, some sort of plot device that then you find a character to, to plop down in the middle of? Um, what what is usually that kernel of uh, of a new story idea? It it frequently is a little premise that comes to me it's not a plot it's just a it's it's a little thought about uh something like i i i've said before i was coming home from a studio meeting and you're never in a good mood when you come home from a studio <laughs> meeting <laughs> you want to kill most of the executives you were in the meeting with so and i was in my wife's car and she had simon and garfunkel and paul simon on were both paul simon nuts and I'd heard this song many times. It was called Patterns. And in the song was a line called, My life, or it goes, My life is made of patterns that can scarcely be controlled. And for some reason, this, this time listening to it, this story idea popped into my head about a character who, who has several, the night of his birth, a his grandfather is dying of a stroke and hasn't spoken in days, but suddenly sits up in bed. Uh, predicts five major events in the boy's life beginning when he's 20. And and at the same time, as the boy is not yet born, he's in the other end of the hospital about to be born, um, he tells what the birth weight's going to be, that the boy is born with syndactyly of the toes, and all of that proves true. So the other predictions are certainly going to prove true years from now. 
And that story came to me out of that line in a song. Then I started thinking about the character, and it becomes voice that really matters in that. But sometimes it is the character that comes first. Uh, uh, Odd Thomas came to me as a character. Uh, I was working on a book called The Face, and into my head came the lines, my name is Odd Thomas, I live an unusual unu- un- life, and I had no idea what that was. Uh, it was like I was hearing a voice, like I'd suddenly gone sort of schizophrenic. And I turned to a, a lined tablet, and I wrote down the uh, the line, and the next thing I knew, I was handwriting, which I have never done before or since, the first scene of the novel. And in fact, I ended up writing by hand the whole first chapter. Um, and it was totally the character. I had no idea where the story was going, but his voice came to me so strong, so instantly. And the same thing happened with the character Jane Hawk that I wrote five books about. I had no idea what story I was going to tell. I just, this character came into my mind. And I said, well, let's see what she's doing. And I started writing some scenes with her, and they just began to flow. So it's it's one of the great things about this. It's it's so mysterious where this stuff comes from sometimes that it's fascinating. And uh, it's the thing that is so exhilarating in writing is when that starts to happen. There are a lot of days that are slogging forward, but then those days that are character-driven uh, are just magical. Um, speaking of those two um, books that became series, uh, I, I posted on Facebook yesterday that, that we were going to record today, and, and I said, what's your favorite Dean Koontz book? And, you know, got lots of great answers, and, you know, each one of your books has meant something different to, to someone else. And But over and over again, I would get responses like, ask him when there will be a sequel to X, or ask him when there will be a sequel to Y. Um, and this has kind of been a theme uh, over your writing career is that uh, you write predominantly standalone books and then people clamor to want to know more about what happens. Uh, what is it about certain stories that uh, that call out to you uh, to to find out what's going on with this character? And what is it about other stories that uh, just leave you? personally satisfied to leave some some ends dangling it's uh i wish i could i really understood the full answer to that but i think it comes back again uh to character there are some characters that haunt you as a reader i know that uh that i finish a book and there is no more because it's not a series and yet i don't want to let go of that character and i think it comes back to that i wrote what was supposed to be a trilogy, it turned into two books, uh, Fear Nothing and Seize the Night, with a character named uh, Christopher Snow, uh, who has xeroderma pigmentosum, which means he can't dare not go out in sunlight or even live in, in a brightly lighted room because he cannot process light and he develops skin cancers. Um, and it's it's a real disease and a lot of people don't live long lives with it. But uh, but he was such a captivating character. Uh, unfortunately, I got to the, deliver the second of the three books, and my publisher at that time was not enamored of the book. <laughs> that is a nice way of putting it. Uh, and I had just moved to that house, and I was afraid that if I delivered the third, uh, 
I would I would destroy the relationship and I'd have to move already again. So I put it aside and started delivering other books and never got back to it. And I get endless requests for it. And I I feel terrible that the people were expecting a third and didn't get it. But I also understand why, because that character haunts me. And I think I've begun to find a way that I could do that, even though the first two books are still owned by the other publisher. Uh, it's it's character again, Hank. I, I think that's what it always ends up. Certain characters just spark with people, and they don't want to let go of them. When... Um... Uh, well, first up, do you do you feel like that uh, readers have been um, uh, conditioned to uh, to want series um, that, that because, you know, when uh, a lot of writers I talk to uh, when they sign their first contract, uh, if, you know, a, a lot of times, especially in genre fiction, they'll be asked to, you know, can this be a, a trilogy or at least a duology? Um, do you think that that publishing has steered some of that, uh, or do you feel like that um, that there are uh, certain tastes that uh, have been made because of the way we publish books? Uh, I think that's a really good question because I know the pressure you're under. I've once uh, advised writers that uh, this is what publishers push you to do, generally speaking, uh, and that if if that isn't what you want to do, you're going to have to resist it. Uh, I, the way I put it is, if you write one novel about bricklayers, they're going to want, and it's a success, then they're going to want 20 novels about bricklayers. And uh, it's it's sad because I don't think that's where writers end up doing necessarily their best work. Uh, I think there comes a point uh, where you say, okay, that's a very appealing character. As a writer now, I'm talking uh, that's a very appealing character. I like him, but I've said what there is to be said about him. Uh, in the case of Odd Thomas, I, in the very first book, a promise is made to Odd, and uh, he loses somebody, and a promise is made that this loss is not forever. And uh, and he, it, it remains important to him throughout the books. And I knew that I was not going to be able to write 20 books with Odd. Uh, at some point, that promise has to be kept. Uh, also, uh, he was on a journey. I knew this from book one. He was a very humble character, but he was on a journey to absolute humility. And I had no idea how I'd ever write that, because this may surprise you, but I'm not absolutely humble. And, uh, and writing about what you know, it means you're supposed to try to try to imagine it anyway. So I knew that that journey had to come to an end, and so did Jane Hawkes. Uh, there is a temptation when something works to keep it going, uh, but I sometimes think that's not in the service of the writer's talent, uh, that there's other things you could be doing that maybe would expand what you do and that people would like as much. There's some risk in that, but... Um, and I've certainly done books that I think are among my strongest that some readers don't like at all uh, and want me to go back and do this or that. But you have to you have to be true to your inspiration, I think, or otherwise, why do this? Absolutely. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website your home on the web where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. 
Hub site is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Write. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000-word book, it's about two cards per chapter, roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com um, Dean, a, a lot of your books uh, tend to delve into the areas of the supernatural or um, maybe uh, they, they, they really play with the ideas that there's more to the world than what we can touch and feel. And, and sometimes those things that are more uh, real than, than us bleed over into our world or, you know, however you want to convey that. Um, Is, is that something that, uh, that just naturally comes in in story with you? Are you thinking about things like that? What, what do you feel about the intersection of our world and, and something else? And, and why do you think those, uh, ideas make such great stories that keep us on the edge of our seat. 
Uh, well, I, I'm a big reader of science, and I always, well, not always. Uh, when I was in school, I never liked to read what I was assigned. I always wanted to read something else. Uh, but once I got out of school, and it was my choice what to read, I've always read a lot of science and a lot of quantum mechanics uh, in particular. And modern physics basically tells us that the world is a strange and mysterious place. Uh almost beyond comprehension, uh, even though uh, quantum mechanics uh, physicists will pretend they understand it. Uh, although uh, Richard Feynman, a great physicist, said uh, nobody really understands quantum mechanics. And uh, it, it shows us a world so deeply layered and so mysterious uh, that I can't get it out of my head once uh, once I... I really wrap my head around the way the, the universe works or seems to work. And so it comes up in stories. There, it's not always what you would directly call a supernatural story. Uh, I, uh, I rarely have written anything about a ghost or uh, anything like that. I don't do vampire stories or whatever. But, uh, but there is a sense in all my work that the world is something more than we think it is. And uh, it, it's it's got dimensions that we can't perceive. And I see evidence of this all the time. Certain little strange things have happened to me over the years. And one of the most mundane things is to watch a dog. Dogs' senses are much different than ours. Uh, their sense of smell is 20,000 times ours. Or And just imagine that, what that means and how you perceive the world. And if you're a bloodhound, it's 100,000 times our sense of smell. Uh, their hearing is more acute. And you will often see dogs relating to something that you're unaware of. And I sometimes think they see things we don't see. Uh, I'm fascinated with all that hidden aspect of the world. And some of my stories are about as straight as suspense novels get, the husband or intensity. Uh, but very often this sense of something unknown or uh, unperceived haunts even those kind of stories when I write them. The the other thing that, that uh, crops up over and over, and you uh, already commented about this uh, in your answer there, uh, are uh, dogs and pets uh, seem to uh, always find a place in your stories, or, or a lot of times do. Um, and also the idea of uh, of levity, and there's there's a lot of humor in your books. Um, the the humor is that uh, I, you know I've I've even heard you say that as you were writing something, that if if something was funny to you, if you laughed out loud, um, then then you know you, you made sure to put that in there because that would translate to the reader. Um, it, it, is that something that um, that you consciously work in to the stories to to give us? Uh, a little bit of a breather and uh, to, you know, make sure all of our human emotions are, are kicking in uh, or does that just come from your, uh, from your nature? Uh, well, I've, I've throughout school, I was always considered the class clown. So I, maybe it's in my nature, but I also think uh, that's one of the things that publishers early on in my career really really pushed against uh, when I was at Putnam. Yeah, I, when I delivered Watchers, it had some, that was an early book that I finally put some humor in. And I had written a comic novel and a couple of other things with humor, but I kept it out of the suspense 
and so I couldn't anymore. And I uh, and it, there was more humor in Lightning than there had been in the one before. And my publisher at the time said, "You can't do this. Uh, if if the reader laughs at something, the mood is lost. It, the novel is no longer scary or suspenseful." My argument was that no, that's just makes the characters more human. Uh, we deal with the vicissitudes of life by laughing. And I, I, I always say that even the darkest things, when enough time pass, you can look back on them and see humor in them. Uh, and if we didn't, uh, if I didn't write some humor into the stories, uh, the characters wouldn't seem fully rounded to me. So I always sort of ignored that advice as much as I could. Uh, some stories call for more humor than others. I remember the good guy. I was surprised how the dialogue turned into something out of an old Howard Hawks movie or something, one of those screwball comedies, and yet it's a relentless uh, suspense novel. Uh, so I let it happen as it seems natural to the characters. And some books will have more than others. In Devoted, the book that comes out on the 31st of March, uh, a lot of the humor comes through. It, it has a dog, so there is, there's some of that. But a lot of the humor comes through the villains who are really the bunch of the most terrifying sociopaths I've ever created, I think. And yet they're unintentionally funny. They don't know they're funny, but they kind of are. And I often say I try to de-glamorize evil because it, it annoys me when evil in stories or movies is made to be glamorous because it really isn't. And it's it's the act of a fool. Evil works for a while, but not in the long term. And uh, so these characters in Devoted just struck me as pretty darkly funny. and uh, and. Nowadays, I don't get any pushback on on that kind of thing, and partly because it turned out readers didn't mind it at all; they liked it. Well, I uh, when your uh, when your publisher said that uh, that comedy um, you know takes away the suspense, I think it's actually the opposite. I think allowing people to uh, to smile and breathe um, lets them t uh, drop their defenses. Which then allows you to, you know, kind of sucker punch him again, um, which is which is a great device for a writer, I would think. It's the perfect example of that that pops to my mind from movies is in Jaws, where Richard Dreyfuss gets a funny funniest line in the thing, and an instant later, the giant shark pops up at the bow of the boat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and. As soon as the audience is laughing, then Spielberg hits them with the biggest shock uh, they've gotten yet. And and that's that's why it, it's one of the many reasons it works. But again, there's a there's a lot of common wisdom that is not wise. And I guess that's true in almost everything in life, but it's certainly true in in writing and what advice writers are often given. Well, from uh, from your uh, your time in college, where you wrote that first uh, Atlantic Monthly uh, story that was published and won you uh, in the fiction competition, up until now, how has uh, the tools and the mechanics of writing changed for you? Um, obviously, you're writing on computers and stuff now, and I know that you said with the with the odd Thomas. Um, uh, situation you you wrote out uh longhand 
uh, that first scene. Uh, but what was it like in, in the early days when you first started? Were you writing on typewriter or longhand? How was that going? It started out on, a, on a, just a manual typewriter uh, and graduated quickly to the IBM Selectric. Uh, and I, I was slow to move to computer because I, I do a lot of rewriting. And I don't know, it didn't dawn on me at first that the computer would actually make that so much easier. <laughs> and I, I just got, I was so sure that if I left the Selectric, I, I wouldn't be able to learn the other ones well enough and fast enough to stay on my deadlines. And finally, one day, my wife, after I finished the novel, uh, the last one I ever wrote on a uh, Selectric, she said, okay, here's the amount of typewriter or typing paper we bought. Here's the number of finished pages in the script. You threw away 31 pages for every page you kept. And I hadn't realized how often I was retyping a page. And oh, wow. when I when I began to realize the laborious nature of that could be alleviated by a computer, where you can just so quickly go through a page and make changes, you don't have to retype everything on the page. Then I broke down, got the computer, but my first was an IBM, what did they call them? Uh, display writer they were it was a gigantic thing it was <laughs> it, it looked like something that belonged on the set of star trek you know when it just it, when just huge and uh, and, uh, and it would in fact in those days mostly those were in uh, in newsrooms uh, and then i was on that for years and then moved to computer and just just this past weekend, I got a brand new one, so I keep uh, moving forward. And God, I just love it the, the ease of writing Microsoft Word with, uh, uh, as compared to because I do rewrite so much and revise so much. This this makes it such a simple thing to go through a page twenty or thirty times as opposed to what it used to be. Right. Do, do you find that uh, that that has uh, changed your creative process when you're when you're not retyping 31 pages, but able to kind of, you know, make amends on the fly and, and keep going? Um, did that help keep the, the story flowing as you went? Well, it didn't change my fundamental way of working. I I have I'm often asked, by, do I ever have uh, uh Writer's block. I almost I, I blocked on the term. It's so scary, and I <laughs> I always say no. I I've never had writer's block, and but it I know where it comes from. It all comes from self doubt, and even though I've never had writer's block, I have more self doubt than any writer I've met. But I've always dealt with it by not moving on to page two until I've got page one as smoothly written as I can get it uh, to the limits of my talent. And then I move on to page two and then I, the doubt comes right back and I have to go over that page again and again and again. At the end of the chapter, I, I print out in pencil because when you read on paper, you see things you didn't see on the screen. Uh, and to a, I, I sort of build a book like coral reefs are built with all these little dead calcareous skeleton. And uh, people say, well, how do you keep momentum going? And the strangest thing is you become so deeply involved in the story that way 
that the momentum doesn't diminish. Uh, but because I'm not rushing through 10, 12 pages a day, um, uh, I, there are some days when I can do that, when I get to, I can get to 10 pages that I've gone through each page that number of times. Those are long days. But, um, but when you work that way, one of the great benefits is that at some point, always in every story, you get to certain points and you realize somewhere down the road you have a problem and you know what it's going to be and it stops you dead. You think, I can't deal with that. I've screwed up. I, I didn't realize that the, you know there's going to be – this story doesn't work because of this issue or that issue. But when you work the way I do, it's a long time till you're going to get to that point, maybe a month. And during that month, your subconscious is working. And inevitably, you get to that point and you've resolved the issue. Sometimes you get there and you've thought of two or three ways to resolve it, uh, but it isn't something you've concentrated on consciously. So I think that's just the benefit of getting so immersed in the line-by-line writing of the book that it gives your subconscious time uh, to, well, shall we say plot, uh, or to work out those knots in the narrative. Uh, a friend of mine, Steve Bolger, um, writes similar to that, and, and he calls it onioning, um, where yeah. you, you write a, a, a page and then you go back and you go back over it and you just add layers and layers of, of detail or change things or just, you know, stripping off a layer or adding a layer. And then, you know, when you're finished with that one page, maybe it's three pages um, because the story has just kind of become alive and, and grown as you go through those uh those line by line. So I, I like that idea. Um, you said in the past that you give your characters free will and, and agency um, was, you know, that, that sounds like one of these writerly things that we can say and, and, uh, and, and people let you get away with it because you're a writer. Um, but what, what does that mean to you that, uh, that your, your characters are alive and they can do anything that they want to do? It's it's the most difficult thing when I talk to a younger writer for me to try to explain, and it is it is at the it is essentially the the most exciting thing about writing. Um, when a character comes alive, uh, and it can sometimes happen in the first page, but it's usually you begin to see the character coming alive somewhere between pages six, seven, and twenty five, uh, and uh, every story is a little different than that. And by coming alive, I mean it's not just a character. You begin to see there are things about this character that you don't know uh, that are going to evolve out of what you've got so far that you've begun with. And uh, there are going to be surprises. And when the character comes alive, uh, it's just the most amazing thing. I say I give them free will. Uh to do what they're going to do because I have learned over the years that if I'm in the middle of the scene and a line comes into my head and I start typing it, I think, oh, no, 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 I can't let that happen. I can't let him do that. That's just over-the-top stupid. I've learned, no, pay attention. The character is talking to you. I remember when I was writing Life Expectancy, I had the two men in an expectant father's lounge and I knew that they were their lives were going to get tangled up forever in ways I still didn't fully understand 
and uh, the one was going to be good and the other was going to be a very, very bad guy. And I didn't know who the bad guy was. Uh, and this is right at the beginning of the novel. And as I was typing along, I said, uh, and and across the room uh, sat, and I typed, I, the word clown came into my head. And I stopped and said, clown? What do I mean by that? Just some jerk, some idiot? And then I thought, no, I mean clown. And then I thought, no, that makes no sense at all. I can't have... I can't have a character sitting in an expectant father's lounge in a clown outfit. And then I thought, listen to the narrator, because every scene in the, in the novel I write is from the point of view of one character in that scene. I don't do omniscient uh, within one scene in a whole novel, yes. But, uh, and I thought, this is, this is this character telling me the other guy in the room with him is a clown. And I made him into a kind of Emmett Kelly clown uh, with dresses like a hobo with a you know painted nose and all that, but not big floppy shoes or all the strange flamboyant clown stuff. And I thought, well, it, you know, trust this character. By that time, I'd learned to trust characters. Well, I think anyone who read that book would, would now say it's impossible that that book could have been that book if the character hadn't been a clown. There had to be a circus traveling through town, and it turns out that that circus and the people in it turn become really fundamentally important to the entire story, not just to what happens, but to the thematic structure of the story, to what it's about under the story. And it, it's, it's, it's something that I find exciting, and it's impossible to explain, but if a character is really real, uh, and and you give them free will, they take the story places you didn't expect to go. And it's one of the reasons very early on I stopped outlining, because I found the outlines force characters to do things that the characters didn't want to do if they were real and well-evolved. Uh, Dean, we, we talked uh, a few minutes ago about the the changes in, in technology for writers, um, but it, over the years... We've seen the industry of publishing change quite a bit, no more so than maybe over the last 10 years or so when we uh, ha have seen the uh, the ebook revolution and the Kindle revolution. Uh, and then, of course, Amazon being a major player in that. And, and the way that we shop for books has changed. The way that books are delivered to us uh, have changed. Uh, the way that we, we promote and market books have changed. Um, you recently signed a, a five book deal, I believe it was, with Amazon uh, to uh, for their in-house publisher, Thomas and Mercer. Um, what was it that that drew you to Amazon to publish, and and what do you think about uh, about the state of publishing today? Well, publishing is going through massive change, and a lot of people in the industry are not figuring out how to cope with it. Uh, and it can be hugely frustrating when you – I'm not the only writer who will tell you this. A lot of people will tell you this. You see advertising, publicity, promotion, co-op advertising start to disappear because everybody's afraid that that doesn't work anymore. Uh, but they're not necessarily replacing it with anything. Uh, and I watched this, and I watched uh, – 
I, I, I liked everybody I worked with at Random House Band, and, and it was very sad to me that I came to the decision I had to make a change. Uh, but my agents came to the same de- decision independently. And when I had written, I, Amazon had come to me, Amazon Original Stories, a little bit different than Thomas and Mercer, had come to me and asked me to write a novelette that they would uh, promote and illustrate. And I wrote one called Ricochet Joe, and it did very well for them. And I liked the novelette form because you're you're done in a couple, few weeks, not months and months and months like with a novel. And uh, then they asked if I would write a series of novelettes featuring the same character. And I came up with this character called Nameless because he has no name. And I wrote, they, we made a deal. They uh, published six stories of that. Uh, and my experience with the people at Amazon Original Stories was very exciting. I mean, their sense of marketing was so much beyond anything I had seen before. <laughs> yes, It was like, it was bizarre. It was amazing. And uh, when I decided after I delivered the final Jane Hawk that I needed to make a change, uh, my agent said, we want to include Amazon along with all the other publishers we submit this proposal to. And I said, well, I can understand that for novelettes, but should we really go there for novels? Because for one thing, Barnes and Noble won't carry those books. And they, my agents made a very good case that we should at least include Amazon because I'd had such a good time working with the division that did the novelettes. So we included them and their offer came in. At, we had eight offers and their offer was right with the best of the other uh, publishers. But the difference was the marketing plan. Uh, the other publishers either gave a one-page or a two-page marketing plan. Uh, Amazon came through with a 40-page binder of their marketing plan. And when I looked at it, I said, all right, this is this is very different. My agents <laughs> made the case that your books might not be in a lot of stores, but you're going to sell more. And you're going to reach more readers. And I now believe that's true because after I accepted the Amazon deal and began working with them, it's a different group of people, but I'm just as nice as the others. I mean, uh, they're they're a very enthusiastic group and and very creative. And uh, 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 after I had taken this deal, the Nameless stories came out, and we just passed three months uh, – uh, of those being available, and were nearly two million downloads of, of the Nameless series, and it's it's fascinating to me. This uh, will redound, I think, to the sales of Devoted when it comes. Now, uh, one of the things that was so odd about it was they said uh, we want to give these stories away. We'll allow people to buy them, but we also want to give them away to people on Amazon Prime who want them. Uh, as a bonus for being an Amazon Prime. And I said, well, how does that work? (laughs) And they said, well, the way we look at it, we count that as a sale. To us, it is, because it's a benefit to us if the people who sign up for Prime are happy. And it was was such an amazing 
they have this sort of rule at Amazon that everyone is a customer. Their suppliers are not suppliers, they're customers. The people, not just the people who buy from Amazon, but the people who sell from Amazon are treated like customers. And writers are treated like customers. And it's truly a strange and interesting change. Uh, but one that's for the better, I think. So, uh, so I don't know. I could end up falling on my face, but so far it looks pretty good. <laughs> well, the, the, the Nameless series is just absolutely fantastic. And each one of those uh, is 55 pages or so, uh, give or take a novelette. Um, you know, you could easily consume those in an afternoon and in a seating a, a lot of times. And um, I, I love the, the whole format of those. It's, I love the novelette form because you can do – when I decided to do those, I said, okay, we're going to try to give it the same experience of the novel in this very condensed form. And that meant the same kind of color, uh, characters that come alive for you like they would in a novel where you have more time to know them, and and some real surprises in the course of each story. And uh, it, was a, it was a challenge, but it was also a lot of fun and uh, – I don't know. We may end up doing more of these down the road, and uh, I, I wouldn't mind at all. Well, the the new book that that we're ultimately here to talk about today, um, which when when people are hearing this interview today is release day, and it it'll be available on your Kindle as we talked about, or in in uh, in hardcover and uh, audiobook, uh, any way that you enjoy books, you can you can grab it, and there's links to it in the show notes of this episode. Um, but this book is really intriguing to me. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first got my copy of it, I, I tore into it. And of course, there are things that we would expect. Uh, there's a, um, th- there's a, a, a child who's a little odd. There's, um, there's a, a loving mother who, um, you know, is constantly worried uh, about him. And there's sort of this existential bigger than life threat. And of course, there's a dog. Um, <laughs> tell us where where the story came from uh, for you. It's uh, of course I had I had written this novel that uh, has been I guess for most people my signature book, Watchers, which is a big dog story, but it's also a big scary adventure story. And uh, and I was uh, reading some science one day and. Uh, came uh, across this, uh, there are three basic categories of life on the planet. One is uh, includes mammals and, and all other animals uh, that, uh, and insects, everything that's alive uh, uh, in, in above the form of the bacteria. And then the, the second life form, and, and plants are not necessarily part of what I'm describing here. The second is bacteria. And the third is Archena, which is this uh, that for many years until a couple of decades ago was thought to be a, a bacteria. But in fact, we now understand it as a different life form. And it has the most amazing capability of passing genetic material across species. Uh, until the, this was discovered, it was always thought that inheritance was entirely vertical. It came down from your grandparents to your parents. It came down from the puppies, grandparents, and whatnot. But we now know that this life form can take genetic material from one species and put it into another. And it's partly simply what it does. It's part of the way nature evolves things. Uh, And I thought, wow, uh, 
some point, I can see somebody taking this and trying to use it for nefarious purposes. That's Although I'm an optimist, I always think of the nefarious purposes that people can put things to. And that started me, that, that I thought, there's a, there's a story in that that can be really scary. And for some reason, I thought uh, at, almost at the same time, uh, I was thinking about the human-dog bond, which I thought of a lot, which I find mysterious and wonderful. And it occurred to me, uh, I could tell a story, not a sequel or prequel to Watchers, but one that deals with the human-dog bond and the magic of it in a different way. And that says, after 100,000 years of humans and dogs living together and working together, it would be very natural if some dogs began to become more intelligent. Uh, and what if that's already happened and there's there are strains of dogs out in the world that have abilities that we don't recognize and that in some way, in one way in particular, I don't want to give anything away, is uh, is superior to ours. And what if these dogs actually have a secret community, they call themselves the Mysterium, because they have no idea where they came from. They don't understand why they are what they are. And these two elements came together, and uh, I realized, oh, these are part of the same story. And uh, once I got it started, this thing was just an absolute joy to write for me. The um, the the character um, uh, of the little boy in the book, um, was that something that you had been thinking about, about this, uh, this youngster who um, had so much going on but couldn't communicate? Um, where, where did he come from? Uh, my wife and I have worked for uh, – 25, 30 years with a charity called Canine Companions for Independence that produces uh, assistance dogs for people with severe disabilities. And uh, it, it's it's an amazing organization. They produce them for no charge to the people uh, who receive them. And, uh, and, and they mainstream a lot of people. I've, I've known paraplegics, even quadriplegics who could not live alone before, but with the right dog who can do all these tasks for them, uh, they get a tremendous amount of independence and many times live alone with the dog. Uh, and here a number of years ago, uh, CCI began to uh, provide uh, socializing dogs for children uh, with autism. And it's it's amazing to watch what a, a socializing dog can do when the child and the dog are bonded the the meltdowns as they're sometimes called that autistic children go through virtually stop uh the children become much more socialized they're still autistic but most of the difficult behavior goes away simply because of the dog and and human bond and that has fascinated me for some time so i realized that that part of what this story would be is this boy, Woody, uh, would be fatherless because his father died in an accident that would turn out not to have been an accident. And Woody would be autistic, about 11 years old, and never spoken a word in his life. And that the encounter with this dog, this really special dog, would do far more for him than an assistance dog could do. And, uh, and that I think added a level to the story that uh, that made it really special to me. 
And I'll tell you what, the the relationship uh, of Woody and, uh, and the, the special canine connection is, uh, you know, not only is this book a page turner and a gripping thriller like, uh, you know, as good as any that you'll ever read, uh, but man, it doesn't get you in the feelings, you know. Uh, and that's, that's what I love about your books. It's such a wild uh, kind of gamut of emotion, and uh, I think that's what keeps us coming back for more and more. We know we can depend on you to take us to all those places. Well, it's uh, it's the human experience is is fascinating because of its depth and complexity, and that's the challenge when you're writing is try to convey all those things we feel and know in life, and not just the fear and and the rest of it that makes a good thriller. Right. Well, Dean, I know that uh, if if this book is out for sale now, um, that means you've got to have another one in the shoot that you're working on uh, for for uh, your next release. Can you tell us anything about it? Uh, Amazon already has it. It's already gone through editing. It's a book called Elsewhere, and I think it comes out in October, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that. It might change. Um, but it's it's very different than Devoted, but... Uh, but again, it's, I've just become creatively energized by the change of uh, publishers, and uh, so I, I feel 20-something again creatively. So uh, I hope that lasts for another 10 years anyway. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, the new book is called Devoted, and when you're hearing this, it'll be available uh, to purchase uh, everywhere. There's links to it in the show notes of this episode. Um, Dean, if people are just... Uh, uh, you know, want to dig into all the great stuff that you do. I know that you've been collecting uh, information, uh, all of your back catalog and little bits and pieces that people could learn about all the stuff that you do at your website. Can you tell them where they could find that? Yep, it's www.deankoontz.com. Excellent. Um, Dean, this has been so uh, much fun uh, chatting and, and getting to talk about the new book and, and everything that you do. Um, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Well, thank you for having me there, and I hope I didn't blather too much. Wargate Books presents Hit and Fade, Forgotten Ruin, Book Two, by Jason Onspach and Nick Cole, narrated for you by Christopher Ryan Grant. Chapter 1. The Army of the Dead walked straight into our ambush east of Fortress Hawthorne. That's what the fob is called now, Fortress Hawthorne. Despite it being officially known as Forward Operating Base Hawthorne, as was originally intended when the 50 detachments of various special operations groups came forward through time from Area 51, a one-way mission to save Western civilization from a rampaging nanoplague destroying the very fabric of said civilization. Apparently, we overshot the temporal insertion point and stuck the landing. Sorta. About 10,000 years too late. Said civilization is now basically something straight out of Tolkien, or Dungeons and Dragons which we've all now gotten a lot more familiar with thanks to our resident expert and fledgling hedge wizard, the infamous P.F.C. Kennedy. But the Rangers just call it the FOB. 
The first of our explosives to ruin the leading elements of the army of the dead advancing on us? Claymore mines the recaptured forge back at Hawthorne had cranked out in the weeks after we'd retaken it from King Triton? were fired by Ranger Sergeant Kang down there with the scouts and Captain Knifehand's assaulters. It was close to midnight when the front rank of bony warriors, carrying rotting shields and spears, eyes glowing malevolently in the deep night mist, advanced into our ambush, only to get ruined by the daisy-chained Claymore's sudden eruption. Above us, a cloud-shrouded moon cast a wan yellow light over the battlefield. The night was hot, and spring was coming on full now. The pilots who'd gotten us here in the grounded C-17 back at Ranger Alamo, using their meteorology skills, had guessed it was going to be a long, hot summer ahead of us, and an early one at that. But there was a cold shiver in the dark on your exposed skin that you couldn't quite explain when you saw the dead advancing rank after rank. The bone warriors carrying spear and shield, other darker creatures barely seen. The lower areas of the earth were graveyard cool and misty, so maybe that was it. Still, the brutal, unrelenting cold of our almost last stand back at Ranger Alamo was gone now. But not the horrors. There wasn't a night that some ranger didn't wake up out of a tormented sleep, breathing heavy, sidearms scanning the dark and looking for orcs and ogres to ventilate. I was sweating in the hour leading up to the attack, despite the night and the mist. Kurtz had us humping hard to get the 240 and all its ammo up to the top of a small hill that overlooked the area where we'd channel the advancing echelons of the Army of the Dead into further fun and games the rangers had planned at a bend in a riverbed. If the approaching Army of the Dead continued on their current course track, they'd enter it for a brief period. It was decided by the captain we'd kill them there and I was sweating. Not because of fear. No, not at all. Firing, whispered Sergeant Kang over the calm as he detonated the mines. And eight daisy-chained claymores spat thousands of steel balls all across the front line of what even I was still finding it hard to believe I was seeing through my night vision device. Skeletons. Warrior skeletons. Ancient warriors like something out of the Bronze or Iron Ages. Worked breastplates of molded plate or rotting scales. Green and tarnished, stamped with the markings of fabled armies fallen in battles long, long ago. Leather cuirasses on some. Rotting boots. Helms with broken horns, missing teeth, tattered leather kilts. Beads and charms dangling from bone wrists. Enigmatic holy signs and primal torques black with grave dirt or from a funeral pyre long ago on some forgotten battlefield far from here, draped about the spine where the throat should be. Where it rises to connect to a bone-white skull that seems filled with malevolent purpose and diabolical intelligence. Malignantly so. 
walking skeletons like something out of a Ray Harryhausen clay model Sinbad epic from the 1960s. Above, the sliver of moon gave enough light to strengthen our NVGs, making the night vision devices perform exceptionally well as we sprang our trap and watched the advancing elements get rocked by our initial high-explosive opening bid in the game we were about to play. The air was still and hot in the moments before the fight began as we lay there in the tall, sharp grass, waiting for it all to go down. I was thinking a hot cup of coffee would be nice about now, except my canteen only had cold coffee I'd brewed during the long, silent, and windy afternoon of preparation. Still, I was happy knowing I had some, rather than none. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no further than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.